to episode 25 of Long Hair Do Care, a podcast about queer intersectional ecofeminism. I am your host, Georgie Corkery, pronouns she, her, hers, also happy to go by they, them, theirs. And this is my April 2022 episode, and the topic, which I'm very excited about, is intersectional civil and gay rights movement with Erica Lindstrom. Erica, she, her pronouns, is the gender and sexuality coordinator at the USU Inclusion Center. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. What are you most excited to talk about? Anything and everything. Right now, I'm really focused and passionate about queer history. And so some of the things we may not realize is the intersectional parallels between some of the things that we're taught in school or what we see in media and the actual history that we need to dive in deeper about. I'm I'm so excited. I've been wanting to get Erica onto the podcast since she did an inclusion training. I think it was... LGBT inclusion training? I believe it was either the Allies or LGBT 101 trainings. Okay, yeah. I think it was the Allies one, and it was great. You're a great speaker, and I was like, oh, I want some of these facts on my podcast. So I'm so excited to have you here. And before we jump into the topic, we need to talk about the cats that we've seen. Erica, what cats have you interacted with or seen <laughs> recently? Uh, I feel like I'm going to let your readers and list- or actually listeners down on this. <laughs> I've only seen cats in the distance, where we have some stray ones where I live out in Wellsville, Utah. But, I mean, I have chickens, and I have... That, yeah. Yeah, so starting up a chicken little family thing. Ooh, and just, have, just new. A new yes. thing for you. Okay. Yeah, trying to do some education. I can tell you all the things not to do when trying to raise your chickens for the first time ever. <laughs> um, I feel like everyone goes through that. I have a few friends right now who are trying out chickens for the first time, too. Yeah, so that's about what I have right now, is I got some chickens and I have two dogs. <laughs> we can pretend, but one of the dogs acts like a cat. Okay, that's fair. What's your dog's name? I have two. One is Rocky and one is Atlas. Atlas oh. is about 90 pounds right now, and she's still puppy. We're expecting her oh to be about goodness. 140 pounds, and oh my she's goodness. our cat dog. That's a big cat dog, but yes. <laughs> I love it. The cats that I've seen in the last month were Captain Hammy, who I've brought up a lot, Milo, who is Ronan, Hart's cat, again from episode 20, a positive transition. Shout out to Ronan, you're great. Finn, who's this giant gray cat. My friend Liana's roommate, Dakota, <laughs> it's his cat. And oh gosh, I love Finn. Uh, Sally, who is one of the professors in my department, is Courtney Flint's cat. And we had like an end of semester party and the cat was super cute. And we did play Pictionary, and I'm pretty sure my team won. And I might have been a little bit too competitive, so if anyone was there is listening to this, I apologize. So that's all the cats. That's five cats, and I feel good about that. For wildlife, have you seen any wildlife, Erica? Uh, recently? It's more the sounds of wildlife. Okay. So, or, well, actually, I've seen some deer. Uh, yeah, family of those driving around here in Utah. But right now where we've had this rain, which has been nice and everything, there's a river close to where I live. And at night and even sometimes during the day, I can hear the frogs. Ooh. And I've had one or two find us in our yard and it gets me really excited about <laughs> that. And then we've had some birds starting to come out. 
Okay. So I can't name them other than pretty bird, scary bird, <laughs> little bird, big, big bird. bird. Yeah, exactly. You know, That's the really right. scientific terms for them. <laughs> Love it. Well, for my wildlife, I actually do list off some of the birds that I've seen. Oh, no. Well, first of all, I saw a rabbit, just a singular rabbit. I don't have any notes about where I saw it, and I honestly forget. Probably running with my friend Lizzie. And then I saw great blue herons, cinnamon teal, red-winged blackbird, and a yellow-headed blackbird. I don't remember where I was, but I must have been around Great Salt Lake somewhere. I do go birding, Erica. Okay. And so I try to identify birds, but I'm compared to the people who've done it for longer and with more intention around it, I'm not a good birder. But compared to most people who don't know birds, they might call me a birder, which I don't know. I'm on the fence about but to answer a question that you had before we started recording is why do I talk about the cats I've seen yes. and interacted with? Seeing cute things floods your brain with hormones. And I think also talking about cute things <laughs> floods your brain with hormones. So hopefully people who are listening are thinking about really cute cats or like a really cute cat video or a kitten and it makes them happier. That's kind of why I do it. And then also... Because then, I don't know, it makes me more grateful when I hang out with cats. <laughs> and same thing with wildlife. I think wildlife connects you to your surroundings a little bit more. So when you're trying to notice it, it puts you more in the moment. So with both of those, that's that's why I do that. And then, of course, last to talk about before we jump into our topic is conscious content consumption, which I like to bring up because we are always consuming things. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you're consuming media. And some of the media that we consume, or even some of the toys that we play with, don't teach us the right lessons. Eric and I talked about Legos before this, and how shockingly racist they are. We consume all these things, and our headspace is in this media. And so if we don't consume media consciously, or content consciously, then we might be learning the wrong lessons. So, Erica, what conscious content consumption do you have to share today? Yes, I'm right now still in a kick of just kind of rediscovering. I think it's really important for someone to know their history, to know where they're going ahead of time, the past things, things to admire, things to acknowledge whether they've ha happened, and making sure like we have to acknowledge the past to, to shape the present. So two of the things that I'm actually really excited about is, one of them is there's a book that just came out, and it's called um, Female Husbands, A Trans History by Dr. Jen Mannion. And so in the 18th and 19th century, there was a term called female husbands, and it was actually in what today's time is trans men that were married and had lives and were completely living their authentic self in society and people either accepted of them but they actually had a terminology you don't hear that term anymore hmm, and it yeah. kind of goes back to this notion of queer erasure because queer history's been around in different terminologies and we also have to think about the different cultural cues so what terms i may utilize in my western lens of framework may be very different from someone else and we have to be very careful of what terms we're using so instead of saying, oh, here's a history of trans men, we have to think about it in that time of yeah. female husbands. I've never heard the term female husbands. So, yeah. And remind me, what year did you say this was? Or oh, what this was century? like uh, history in the 18th and 19th centuries. Wow. So okay. this is something I'm personally going to be diving into more because <laughs> I just recently learned about it. Um, and then kind of going back to more of those time periods is there's a show called Gentleman Jack. Have you ever heard mm -hmm. of Ann Lister? 
No. Okay. So Anne Lister. Yes. Okay. I have been really geeking out, especially because of my wife. She's the one that introduced <laughs> me to this character. She's a real woman back in 18th century in England, and she had these journals, but she wrote it in code. So every letter of the alphabet had a different letter. So this code was not cracked for over a hundred years. And she was a lesbian and she talked about her experiences and her life, but it was hidden in this code and she changed the names. And so what happened is with the show Gentleman Jack is they translated her diaries and they made a TV series about it. It's on HBO Max. Whoa, yes. Okay. So season two just came out. And I love this because it's a re- refreshing reflection of the LGBT community. Because a lot of times there's these tropes within the queer community of like the bury your dead trope where the lesbian is going to die or the lesbian's a villain. Yeah. Or the lesbian is unfaithful in their partnership because they're discovering who they are. But mm-hmm. instead of having healthy communication, they kind of make it acceptable to just go and cheat. And yeah have all those so again it kind of goes with that persona of promiscuous queers and all of these things yeah queers cheat they lie and they die or Or, they're the villains like all the disney villains are queer coded well and there's a reason why with the Hayes code and how that came about it was very intentional on that wait the Hayes code yes so with Hayes code in the 1920s so before how people were like well in my day i've never seen queer individuals and history and things like Mm -hmm. that Well, in the 1920s, I want to say, don't quote me on that, don't say that, but (laughs) what happened was, before then, you had things like Charlie Chapman. You had, like, Mm -hmm. the cross-dressing characters. I use that term because that's what historical context, not necessarily what I have now. Yeah. But you had all of these things that played with binary. You have histories of soldiers and different terminologies of finding relationships and same-sex attraction, or, like, (laughs) relationships with that. Um, Not so much same-sex attractions. But... You had all of these things going on, and now you have media that's starting to connect. So what things would might have been taboo or okay in smaller societies are starting to be connected. So the Hays Code came about that it said, okay, movies and radio and things, we need to keep it moral. So anything that's amoral, we cannot show. So drugs, violence, queerness. Was this... Only in the United States? I believe so, that the Hays Code was active here. But again, you have censorship of what is being imported. So that's the reason you're not going to have nudity or swearing. Yeah, that's why I know the Hays Code, because they talk a lot about nudity and what can and cannot be shown. But then women were still as close as they could get to nudity and sexualizing them as possible. Yeah. They talk a lot about that in the Bechdel cast, which is my favorite podcast. I've talked about it before, and everyone should listen to it. I'll have to check it out. It's so good. Yeah, so with the Hays Code, what happened is all of a sudden, if you showed queerness as a villain, you could kind of get around. You could get away with it. So if you think about, like, okay, and then you have these tropes of stereotypes, too. So think if you think about Scar, an effeminate man. Ursula um, from Little Mermaid is actually quoted to a drag queen. Yeah. It's not in a speculation. So. Again, you have the villains that are more, like, within the queer community. They're Mm kind of hinting, but they never physically outward state those things. Yeah. So you have this hidden messages. So when Hays Code disseminated and finally was no longer there, you still have certain tropes that are still being relayed. There's another good, if you're going to go conscientious uh, media content, disclosure on Netflix. 
and talking about trans representation okay. in the media. And that's another one about... Is that the one on. with Laverne Cox and it's yes. more of a documentary? Okay, it's yes. on my list to watch. Oh, um, she's phenomenal. And just the information because we're still doing these things. And there's things that we have to realize how much... In my childhood, how much do I have to unlearn? Because yeah. one of the things as being a member within the LGBT community is realizing you're not exempt from other power struggles. Totally. And so realizing, okay, what racism am I perpetuating? What ableism things am I doing? What other biases and subconscious things do I have? And how am I unlearning these? And part of that unlearning is understanding your history of what we're going about. Absolutely. I think that's something that I realized too late in life, probably around 21. And then luckily I had the uh, Utah Pride Center, Pride Festival community. And through them, I've learned a lot. And I think we've learned a lot together as well. There's so much unlearning to be done. But you mentioned female husbands, a trans history. Gentleman, what was the show? Gentleman Jack. Gentleman Jack. And is that on Netflix? or it's, uh, HBO Max. On HBO Max. And yeah, then the last one you just said... Disclosure. Which is on Netflix yes. with Laverne Cox. Yes. Okay, awesome. Thank you for sharing. For my conscious content consumption, I have one thing, and it was actually recommended by Ronan. So shout out to you again. I've been taking a lot of his recommendations lately, and they've rocked. It's a podcast called All My Relations. It's hosted by Matika Wilbur from the Swinomish and Tulalip peoples of coastal Washington and Adrian Keene, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. The podcast explores what it means to be a Native person today. To be an Indigenous person is to be engaged in relationships, relationships to land and place, to a people to non-human relatives, and to one another. This is directly from their website. I'm just reading that off. All My Relations is a place to explore those relationships and to think through indigeneity in all its complexities. I am not indigenous in any way, shape, or form, but I found this podcast to be, one, really beautiful and really well done. They have incredible cover art for every single episode. They're hilarious. They might as well be comedians. It's so fun to listen to. And every episode has great guests on it. I want to talk a little bit about Matika Wilbur. She is the director and co-host and is a visual storyteller. Before the podcast, she was traveling and photographing Indian country for five years in pursuit of one goal, to change the way we see Native Americans. Matika began her career in fashion and commercial work in L.A. Though in high demand professionally, Matika realized that she wanted to do something different. She talks about one story where she was doing a photo shoot of a white woman in whatever dress, and she wasn't eating lunch, she hadn't had breakfast, and she'd mentioned that, and then when Matika was going through the photos with her, uh, she made the comment, I'm so fat, and she was not fat, and she was shaming herself, and she was starving herself, and Matika had this moment of, this is not what I want to be contributing to. And so that's what brought her to change what she was doing and photograph indigenous people and hopefully changing the perspective of what uh, most people see is Native American. I want to specifically recommend one episode called Decolonizing Sex with Dr. Kim Tallbear, and it's about polyamory. Dr. Kim Tallbear is a citizen of the Sisseton Wapitan Await. Sorry if I don't pronounce that perfectly. And she has a blog about polyamory. This is snippet from her blog. I was raised in a subtly sex 
stigmatizing environment that I attribute to the effects of all the good colonial agents, Christian missionaries, and the settler state. I come from a line of Dakota and other indigenous thinkers who are known for their complex intellectual and political contradictions. People who knew that culture, dynamicism, is essential not only to their people's survival, but to our flourishing. Throughout her blog, and also throughout all my relations, they bring up the topic of decolonial theorizing. For example, in the blog, she writes, I blog and tweet as a critical polyamorist about polyamory and other forms of open non-monogamy and their intersections with ingenuity, race, and cultural politics in the U.S. and Canada. I view polyamory as a form of settler sexuality, but with opportunities for partial decolonialization. I view these less common settler relationships as steps on the road to disaggregating sexuality into good relations. One of my takeaways from the episode with Dr. Kim Talbert on the All My Relations podcast, again called Decolonizing Sex, is that Dr. Kim Talbert says, why should I call it ethical non-monogamy when describing polyamory when we don't use the word ethical to describe monogamy? It's just implied that monogamy is ethical but polyamory or non-monogamy is unethical, so we need to have that prefix. So I thought that was really interesting. You should definitely check out all of Dr. Kim Talbert's work and then the podcast, All My Relations. Now let's go ahead and jump into our topic, Erica. Do you want to give a brief overview and I can ask you questions from there? Yeah. Well, I guess the first, the starting point and kind of what I talked about earlier about unlearning some of the things that we've learned and seen in media representation is right now Pride is about to start, Mm -hmm. Pride Month, and it's kind of exciting, but I want you to think about when you think about Pride, what do you think? I know you definitely think about maybe the progress flag, the trans flag, the parades, but I want you to think about the individuals that you see in media. What do you see advertised? Mm -hmm. Well, let me think. I I know different ways to answer this question, (laughs) but you do see a lot of, I would say, white gay men and a lot of drag, and that's what I know and have some issue with as something that represents queerness. And then, of course, you're right. I imagine all the flags and all the parades and having done a festival and been really invested in Pride Month (laughs) back in Salt Lake City. Yeah, there's a very specific aesthetic to it. Yeah. And part of that's actually very intentional of the history of going back to it and diving in deeper. Because me personally, I never actually heard about Martha P. Johnson until maybe about 10 years ago. And what started the gay rights movement? You think about Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And so the first throwing of the brick, but a lot of times people don't actually think about who were the ones that were the most marginalized, had the most to lose and who Mm -hmm. made the biggest gains. And so with the gay rights movement and talking about those intersectional parallels, we think about, okay, a lot of times that this LGBT community, even though we talk about all the diversity and things in it, is actually this monolith. Mm -hmm. We have to unbreak down those assumptions and what history is doing. And it's always those in power that have created the narrative of what the gay rights movement was. And if we go back, so the Stonewall riots were not the first ones that we ever had. Um, Okay. And some of the leaders were actually wearing multiple hats and multiple roles going with that intersectionality. So when I talk about, okay, if we didn't have the civil rights, 
we wouldn't have the gay rights movement. Most people would be like, wait, what? There's <laughs> gay rights are over here. We had disability rights over here. We have our And everything separate. Yes. <laughs> and no one interacts with anyone else because that is their, you know, fight of resistance. That's their struggle. It's not ours. Mm-hmm. In reality, we're so intertwined. And mm-hmm. if you think about with any movement, if there's an injustice for one, it's for all of us. So for instance, And a different tangent I could talk about is we don't have marriage equality yet. And so what I mean by that is for those that are on different insurances with the government or in disability, they have to choose, like, they're limited with, like, jobs and things here. If Even if they want to work, some of the insurances, unless they're an employer that's like, okay, you work part-time, we're going to cover life-saving health care, you can't. So you have individuals that want to work, but um, work accommodations are non-existent. And it's the same thing if they find the love of their life and want to get married. If your income is a certain level, you no longer qualify for disability. Which is really frustrating to hear. That's not something that I knew about beforehand. Yeah. So going back to, like, now that's in the current realm, but going back to our history of what it means in the LGBT and the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. is, like, Martha P. Johnson. We're just now starting to hear about her more and things. Will you explain who Martha P. Johnson is? Yes. And also, um, you did mention the throwing of the brick. Um, That very much has to do with Stonewall, and I'm not sure everyone listening knows what Stonewall is. Yes. So to kind of go back about 100 years, or actually a little bit before. (laughs) 50 years, right? Like 53 years. Oh, well, Stonewall was 1969. But before then, you have to think of what was leading up to it. Okay. So we have all of a sudden the Hays Code, queer erasure, queer history. Um, People were starting to get penalized by how they dressed. So, for instance, in New York, it had the three-article clothing law police could stop you and let's think about how much personal like just think about how lack of um respect you have so if someone was wearing like for instance a female um wearing pants and dressed in male clothing if she did not have three articles historically associated with femininity she could be arrested and just taken off. Okay, so, so that's the rule. You have to be dressed three articles of clothing at all times. So think about it. If your uh, like your clothing is undergarments, police officers are going to be checking. So again, it was very arbitrary of who was policed, who wasn't. Yeah. If you had power, some of it would look the other way. If you were someone of color, or if you were in different marginalized mm-hmm. groupings, if you were trans. Those were the more vulnerable and who were most likely be policed. It sounds like a super objective, sorry, a super subjective law. Exactly. And so what was going on is police officers were going into places that were historically safe queer spaces. So before, there was different enclaves, the gay neighborhoods, there was the Harlem Renaissance of just amazing queerness that was going on. And police were coming into historically safe areas and starting to make all these different arbitrary things. Arresting people, people losing their jobs, losing livelihoods. They could be institutionalized, conversion therapy, all of these oh. things that could be occurring for simply and all just these being very who you traumatic are. Things. Yes. Ugh. With constant, uh, consequences that are still being felt, generational things of mm-hmm. what it could have occurred. Again, so before Stonewall, there was the Jean Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco, 
where a lot of drag queens that would go after work or things like that would go there to eat at this diner. Police were coming in. And again, it was, in this case, a drag queen that an officer came in and was going to arrest her, everything else. She threw a cup of coffee in the officer's face and was like, no, we are done with this. This is not ethical to my human dignity. These laws are unjust. And who are you? You would not do this to someone that was straight and be like, well, your outfit or what I assume. You're coming into these spaces. So it's riots there. But what happened over on New York side with these three clothing laws and things like that, and when I talk about the stone, like throwing of the brick, officers were coming with paddy wagons every so often to different queer neighborhoods, rounding up individuals for the crime of being queer. And paddy wagons are large, yeah. Basically, yeah. Like again, I'm trying to think of the better term, but it was pretty much yeah. just like vans and stuff to take um, and arrest people. I imagine those cartoons or older videos where they're big cars, and then there's like little bars in the back, and people are looking through the back window as they drive off. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. And then even with those, they would publish the names of the newspapers. Oh, God. You also had the 1950s Lavender Scare, where the government actively was seeking anyone that worked in the government institutions. If they were queer, they were, like, either they were terminated instantly, and this was known as the Lavender Scare, and they were actively searching. They would have individuals doing bait switches, so officers pretending to be gay. Oh, God. To hunt down and try to find individuals. So it wasn't just simply, okay, you hear in today's homophobic, transphobic things of why are you flaunting it. It was active hunting for individuals. So you have all of these tensions, livelihoods, things against you, not recognizing your human dignity, and things like that nature. So what happens is 1969 in the Stonewall Inn, which was another known historically queer bar, police officers came in to do the exact same thing to arrest. And so Martha P. Johnson, as actually, um, she's a trans woman, but you'll have different variations and stories and narratives, including from her own family. So anyway, what happened is there were several individuals in there and they said, not today, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And there was a riot. It wasn't like, okay, we're trying to be civil discourse. We're trying to have all these other things. And so during that, a brick was thrown at a police officer's vehicle and it was the first time people fought back. Or like that was known to that caliber besides the Gene Compton's cafeteria in San Francisco. So you had individuals, and this was the officers were outnumbered. The protests, from this, it started Mm -hmm. the movement for the gay rights movement. But talking about the erasure, you have trans women, you have drag queens, you have all of these gender minorities within this movement that's Mm -hmm. doing this. Two years, people of color. Yes, very much so. Like the people who were most vulnerable, who fought back. And you have the racism, you have all these things. But what the kicker is, is two years later, they made a commemorative statue outside of the Stonewall Inn. The statue was white individuals that were cisgender (laughs) and lesbians and gays. None of that. So the history was already being erased. And how many years did you say after that? Two years later. Oh, man. It wasn't like, oh, someone well-intentioned. You have all these. So you have this spark of what moves on, but you have to kind of go back to the gay or the civil rights movement and thinking about what did that look like? Because there was actually some parallels of who the leaders were. Again, when we talked about the Stonewall riots, we have to think about some of the figures that were in the civil rights movement that are actually also powering the gay rights movement. As we talked about, there's not these little monoliths and Mm -hmm. no interconnectedness whatsoever. 
So one of the other individuals besides Martha P. Johnson that we don't really know about is Bayard Rustin. He was very predominant leader within the civil rights movement. He advised Dr. Martin Luther King. He was also a gay black man. And so in some towns and some individuals that knew fully who Bayard Rustin was would actually blackmail Dr. King and say, hey, if you do not leave our town, we're going to say that you're associated with this gay man. Because, mm-hmm. again, that's even more of a taboo when yeah. you add on to the racism. Now you have the homophobia mixed in. But Bayard Rustin was one of the individuals that talked about peaceful resistance and doing the sit-ins and all of these different things that we know about. Or even he also organized the March on Washington in 1963. Okay, so these two very powerful things that (laughs) the movement was known for. Yeah, so like the civil rights had the Montgomery bus boycott and we had the gay rights movement had Stonewall. So the March on Washington in 1963, but in 1973 was the National March for Gay and Lesbian Rights Mm. in Washington. Some of these parallels. Some of the other things is with the civil rights, you had sit-ins Well, what the gay rights movement did was sip-ins. So they started going to bars that were refusing individuals that if they were queer, that they would serve them. So they would go and sit at the bar asking for drinks and trying to order and be patrons and being kicked out, all of these other things. So you have some of these different parallels for some of the leaders that were doing the things in the civil rights. And say his name one more time. Yes, Bayard Rustin. And Rustin, was he part of both of those things, the Mm -hmm. sip-ins and the sit-ins? Yes. Okay. He's did quite a bit, but for him, it was just like not putting words into things, but he was very much about social justice. It wasn't, Hey, I'm a gay man or I'm a black man. It's like, these are who I am. It's not for those things. So you have those parallels. And so for instance, also kind of going back to having gay marriage, as I talked about, we still don't have it. Yeah. But what we have right now in the form was actually paralleled off the Loving versus Virginia case. So that was the first uh, one in 1967 that made huge news. 67? Uh-huh. Okay. Of I would inter- not have guessed 67. Yeah. <laughs> so you have an interracial couple. They're trying to get married because up to that point it was illegal. Mm-hmm. All of these things. And so they fought and won their case. So for interracial marriage, a lot of the points utilized in that court of law was then utilized for United States versus Windsor case in 2013. What happened was a lesbian couple that to them were married, but according to the United States law, they were not, had been together for over 60 years. One of the women dies. The partner says, hey, we've been together all this time. This is our land. This is a property. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to take that away from her. So she utilized the same points. Her law, like law team for the Loving versus Virginia won her case Ugh. to start acknowledging, hey, if she can own this property. And that started opening the doors for having gay marriage now yeah. of what we have. I don't remember... What year gay marriage was legalized? What, it was thir- 2013? I would have to look now, too, because to me it seems like a blur. Because yeah. as a child growing up in the South, oh gosh. that, yes, and the, <laughs> the Bible Belt and all these things, the lands of casseroles and bless your hearts, I uh, never really thought about it. So I'd actually have to look because it wasn't 2013. I want to say 2001. I'm going to do a quick look up. Marriage equality in the United States came about on June 26, 2015, which is great. And I don't know if folks know this, but the state of Utah was the third state to legalize marriage equality because of Derek Kitchen, who is one of my favorite people. He's a senator right now, but it was 
Kitchen versus Herbert. Herbert was the governor of Utah at the time, and he won and legalized gay marriage in, in Utah, which is really cool. Derek also owns a farmer's market booth in downtown Salt Lake, and then a restaurant called Lizzie's, and is now a senator, was city council, now senator. And one cool thing, this is totally a tangent on Derek Kitchen and how much I love this man. He came out on Radio West, which is a local radio station, about how, you know, he came out as gay and he had he got married to his partner, but he was still in the closet because he was polyamorous and they were a thruple and he was like, we had to hide it. And now as a Utah senator, I'm coming out. And I think he's the first senator to come out as polyamorous, let alone, uh, well, there's a number of queer um, senators out there, but he's the first openly polyamorous one, which I thought was really cool. That's my Derek Kitchen tangent. I love the parallel. So I'm from Kentucky, and we had Kim Davis. Okay. (laughs) So if you're not familiar, she made national news for fighting, going absolutely will not sign any forms for gay marriage whatsoever. And so I think she had either three or five of her own husbands and, you know, different strokes and not judging that. But she kept using the argument of sanctity of marriage and all of these different parallels. But And when you say she had three or four or five husbands, you mean... Not at one time. Not at one time. Just to clarify. Yes, good clarification. (laughs) But yeah, so she kept saying, no, the sanctity of marriage of one man, one husband, but the parallel of divorce when you're claiming these things and all of this. So the county that I actually grew up in, my hometown, was the last county in the state of Kentucky that actually had the forms. Hmm. So when I got married, me and my wife went to that county townhouse, uh, or the townhome, or not townhome, but the town hall, to go get our marriage certificate. And it was the most simplest thing that I could have made a different one on Microsoft Word that would look nicer (laughs) if you'd given me 15 minutes. So you could tell very much that it wasn't about the forms that took so long for them to make because it said spouse one, spouse two. I felt like we were a Dr. Seuss book. (laughs) Spouse, blue spouse. Yes, exactly. But it was just those things that we have to think about that history. Kind of going back, so when I talk about, okay, so we have all these trans individuals, women of color, individuals of color, the civil rights. It was in the 70s that the LGBT movement started to kick out trans individuals. So when you hear LGBT, a lot of times individuals say the T is often silent. So you have video footage of all this gay mm-hmm. rights movement. These individuals are doing the work. They've put their skin in the game from the beginning. They had the most to lose. And the queer community is actively turning their back on these individuals. And you would have it at different pride festivals and things where a trans woman would go up on stage and she would be booed by the community going, get out of here, you're less of a woman, you're not one of us, all of this. So there's a history within the LGBT, and we have to acknowledge this, individuals that started our liberties being told you are less than, you are not part of us. Let us get our things, and then it'll be that trickle-down effect. Yeah. Then we'll let you have these things. And so you see footage of so many different individuals like Sylvia Riviera, mm-hmm. Martha B. Johnson, begging for their own human dignity. Like, we need to do these things. It's not this party. Pride was never about a party. It is about justice and human dignity and we are going to stop being respectable politics. We are going to be loud. We have tried respectable politics. It doesn't work. We are going to protest. We are going to riot. Enough's enough. And having individuals that benefited from their work 
but not putting in the work for them. Yeah. And so that's part of why we still have to acknowledge now, even within the trans community. So we have over 200 anti-trans laws and legislation in the United States right now. Utah's had several, right like the sports 2022. bill. 2022. Oh yes. And that's not even talking about the Trans Panic Defense Act. So right now in many states in the book, if an individual kills someone for them being trans, they can get acquitted and say, oh, "Oh, I didn't know that they were trans. I feared for my life or some other weak excuse like that. This just recently happened. Someone met someone online, dating app. He was a football player, murders this woman, uses that and was acquitted and charges. Oh, my God. I can look up who it was. But that's the reason we have like the Trans Day of Remembrance. Last year was the highest number of individuals that were killed for being trans. And if you think about the intersectionality, the average life expectancy for a black trans woman in 2022 here in the United States is 35 years old. Oh, my gosh. So when we talk about, okay, yes, we have these parties and things, it's amazing to celebrate who we are. But we have to acknowledge our past, the racism, the body phobias, the body shaping Mm -hmm. things that are going on, the different terminologies. And we need to keep fighting. Yeah. If we're partying, but we're not still doing the work and still making sure that everyone has the same access. So I can get married. I benefit being married to my wife and I love it. I couldn't even think of what year it was, <laughs> but there's still individuals that can't. Yeah. There's individuals that are afraid to go to the restrooms because of what the violence that will be perceived on them and how their perpetrator can be acquitted. Yeah. There's laws right now where kids cannot even be kids because you're wanting to have strangers check their genitalia and all of these things that are not, and we could even talk about the genderization of sports and how some of those are problematic, Mm -hmm. but there's so many other things. So the reason with this intersectionality and why that's important is we need to know where we came from and see the gaps that are currently going on. Mm -hmm. We have- And that are made as time moves on with the erasure. Yeah, white supremacy is still within the LGBT movement. It's still in our communities, and we need to be talking about what does that look like? Mm-hmm. How are we actively combating that instead of saying, oh, well, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. No, How, it's not enough to be anti-racist. It's what are you actually doing? I'm not ableist, but let's think about our language. The yeah. 90s cartoons, they always said, that's so lame, or that's dumb. What are you actually saying? Mm, yeah. But you have stickers, you have things like that in our own ableist. Or, like, let's think about, are we decolonizing things? Are we always making everything a Western lens? How are we working with others that English is not their first language? Or are we making fun of, again, accents or all of these other things? So any of these injustices, as I mentioned before, are not just in this one camp over here or this camp or this one. They impact us all. So for Pride Month coming up, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. The work is not done. It's nice to celebrate and have a rainbow. And I love that. Don't get me wrong. And we need to celebrate the victories of the people that put in the work, but we need to keep putting in the work to kind of go forward. Yeah. I have one question and one comment. The comment is, I love that pride is not a party. Just growing up and seeing it, and even with close friends or family even, it's like, oh yeah, it's pride month. We can take out our flags and we can show up to the festival and woo, like this is great and people are queer and I know a few people who have friends, close friends that are queer and that's, they just bring that up a lot. They're like, oh yeah, you're gay, so I don't know, you like to suck dick or just something that is, one, so inappropriate. If there is a straight cis 
girl, I wouldn't be like, oh, you're straight, so you like to suck dick. Like, you don't say those things. And then also just bringing up that somebody's gay and that's a fun thing is so detrimental. And and you know this, Erica, but I just want to speak to listeners. You know, if you have a gay friend, don't make everything about them being gay. You can bring it up where it's necessary and... There will be points where it's necessary, especially when talking about how uncomfortable they feel in certain situations or how unsafe or how they can be themselves now. But bringing it up as a fun party trick, not cool. Pride is not a party. It can be a celebration, but yeah, I, I like what you're saying. My question is what can people do to continue fighting, whether they're allies or whether they're in the queer community? What what suggestions do you have? Kind of going along, there's a parallel of another article that was written. I cannot think of the author, and I wish I could accredit them. But there was an article that came out, especially differently with like the Black Lives Matter, which is still going on, and we still need to yep. acknowledge and actively understand this. But there was an article that came out maybe about three years ago, and it said, when black people are hurting, white people start book clubs. Oh. And I want, to, I want us to sit there. I want to sit there with that. Because... A lot of times, in our own privileges, it feels very comfortable to educate yourself. And I'm not saying that that's wrong and that's needed, but you can't just say, I started and I read something. So we need to think about these intersectionals. Yeah. So, for instance, when we're standing up for, like, here in, like, Logan, for instance, we had a Break the Silence march about the anti-trans legislation. Mm -hmm. Those same individuals need to be at Black Lives Matter. We need to be at all these other different things. And the thing is also, so if you're in the community, figuring out how can you amplify your voice, if you're not within that particular community, how are you amplifying the voices of others that are in there? Listen to the leaders who has been doing the work, not just come in and go, okay, I'm passionate this one day. Don't be that social media warrior. That's great. (laughs) But educate yourself. There's different things where you can take safe zone or ally trainings or our trans 101 trainings. Mm -hmm. Um, Most universities have it. And if they don't, when are they going to start putting that pressure? What's the onboarding look like? Have you done a full audit of where you work? Are you having those conversations and not just having a tokenized check the box? We did our diversity day. Now we're done. Start the education, but then really look into the policies of where you work. What does that look like? Or in your scopes, do they have a diversity statement? What's the consequences if they, if someone violates that? Yeah. What is the culture? It's like, I'm very weary if they're like, we're all a family here. What are you actively doing to make sure that everyone is at the table and their voice is being heard? What policies and stuff? So there's organizations like Equality Utah. There's others out there, the HRC, Human Rights Campaign, that are doing the work and the things. So you can either donate money if you don't have the time or donate to those resources. Look at the other ones in here. Look at those different intersectional paradigms and make sure that you understand that. I unfortunately joke sometimes saying, oh, it's cool to be gay. And what I mean by that statement is right now with the LGBT movement, you see a lot of things that are coming that are great, Mm -hmm. but you see other marginalized identities that we're kind of going forward, but we're leaving others in the dust. And we need to make sure that we're always doing these things because you see in the media, you see white queerness disproportionately versus anything else. And we can't, we have to be also thinking about our own community. How can we pivot our own privilege into those other spaces to make sure that everyone is benefiting because it's not just a one queer thing, because if there's an injustice, we need to be focusing on that. So I, for me, it's, educate yourself, 
get involved. If you don't know, really go to those communities and ask. Don't mm-hmm. do it as a tokenizing thing of like, hey, I want to do this to feel good or I'm going to change my profile picture. That's cool. <laughs> if I was closeted, that's awesome for me to see your profile picture with a rainbow so I know I can talk to you. So yeah. there is places and times yeah. for that. There, there, that does have a good, it's not a negative impact, but the, but, the positive impact is small. <laughs> yes. So I want you to really challenge yourself. Are you being a performative ally? And what's the difference between what you're doing and allyship and really have that heart to heart? Because, again, it's uncomfortable to mm-hmm. unlearn some of our own biases. It's uncomfortable because there's things I had to unlearn and I'm still working and I have to actively think about those things. Because if I'm going to be part, like, help other communities or be there, it's to be listening to them. They're leaders. They're the ones doing the work. What can I do in my privileges for that? Yeah. Oh, very well said, and I hope listeners take some stuff away from that and either can volunteer their time. Uh, I would say I was going to say volunteer your money, but <laughs> resources. Don't your money, yeah. Give, give to resources. I know that that's uh, sometimes I feel like that's a cop out, but it's actually really helpful for organizations to mm-hmm. receive donations and to continue the work. Yeah, and like I've said before, this isn't the number one thing you can do, but really be aware of what you are consuming and what you're sharing and what you're promoting, and think about it. Have conversations about it. I'm trying to think if I have any other questions for you, Erica. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Just realizing that queer history has been around. So when you think of something, oh, this is new, or what that looks like, challenge your own bias. Why is it, the bigger question is, why are you just learning this? Yeah. Well, because it's always been around. It's the same thing when we talk about all the different history in the marginalized, realizing the people in power are the ones that write your history books. You have critical race theory battles going on right now of why should children be like allowed to learn about the other things that other people are experiencing daily. So is your privilege, you know, being in that conversation? So with everything that you're doing is challenge yourself because we have, we're in an age where we're connected with our phones, our internet, we have TikTok videos, we have <laughs> so many different things, conscientious, you know, consumption, really educate yourself, take advantage of these technologies to do things for good. Yeah. One thing I will say is I think there's a lot of pressure on people who identify as queer or people of color, you know, people ask them questions are like, what does this mean? Or how should I do this? And you shouldn't ever put all the pressure of one culture or one minority group onto the one person that you know that looks like they represent it. Don't do that. And it might be good to ask them personal questions, but if you don't know them well and you haven't had these discussions before, don't just blatantly ask, well, what does queer mean? Because that mean, it can mean so many things to different people. I think also kind of going with that narrative is to you, it might not seem like a big deal to ask that one individual that is whatever that minority status tokenization is, that question, they hear it all the time. All the time. And here's the bigger thing is it should never be on the minority to educate the majority. Yep. We have the technology and the things that go along with it. And then also in our own unlearning. It is a huge privilege and gift if someone is not so much calling out, but if someone corrects you from your own vernacular, something you said or did and said, hey, this hurts is hurtful for this reason. This is not the time to put up our fences, our barriers and say, hey, well, I didn't mean it like this and become defensive. I know that's a human nature and an element because we don't want to be perceived as bad. And we also don't want to feel like we're hurting others. Yeah. But we have to realize that we're humans. We're going to make mistakes. 
And that is the biggest gift that someone can give to you because they don't have to get out of their comfort zone. They could be putting themselves in danger too, not knowing what the response is going to be, but they trust you enough that they can tell you that. And the best response is, thank you for letting me know. Go process it on your own. You can cry, eat your feelings out. (laughs) That's kind of what I do. But, you know, commit to do better, but take that as a gift and realize that's a gift. That's a great way to put it. I've had conversations with many people. The one example I think of is men using the word pussy in a derogatory way. It's just like, hey, that makes me feel really bad. Please don't do that. And if they had just received that as a gift of being like, oh, I really do need to think about that. Mm -hmm. That that would have felt so much better (laughs) if that would have been the reaction. So, yeah, that's a great thing to think about. And... You know, if somebody says that to you and you think about it, maybe you can also stand up to that in the future when you hear your friends or other people saying the word pussy, for example, Mm -hmm. that it's just it's not okay to use in a derogatory way. I Um, love that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. This was educational for me. I look forward to watching both the show you recommended and then I need to watch on Netflix, the one with Laverne Cox. Disclosure. Disclosure. I'm really excited to watch that. And if anybody is listening and wants to hear more about a specific trans experience that is potentially relatable, again, go check out, I think it's episode 20 and it's with Ronan Hart and it's about a positive transition. We recorded that because... Well, I invited Ronan to come on, and he was like, well, I don't have any bad experience to share. And I was like, Ronan, that's exactly why I think you'd be great to have you come on, because you had this positive experience, and you found these resources that I think would be really useful for anybody who is transitioning in Utah to use and to know about, and experiences such as bathroom experiences, and how to move through those, and how to think about them, and to how how to feel maybe a little less alone because it can be a positive thing despite the fact that it is not often depicted (laughs) as a positive experience, which is unfortunate. Granted, there's grains of truth in the negative experiences that we see. Thank you, Erica, again for coming on. This was great. Well, thanks for the platform. (laughs) And I need to thank AJ for creating and performing the theme music. And as my dad always says, use your head and be clever. Bye, everyone. Bye.